Morning, guys. How are you doing? Morning, Amal. Very well, thanks. Fantastic. How have you guys um, uh, been spending the weather that we've been had, uh, having recently? Not this, uh, not this shit show we've had uh, over the last few days, but the nice weather we had earlier. What did you guys get up to? Listen, I'm quite happy with the uh, shit show of the weather at the moment because <laughs> I'm going to go skiing next week. So this cold weather is good. Otherwise, it was going to be hiking. So I'm quite comfortable with the cold. Yeah, Fantastic. Um, I, Yourself, Tom? I got the short end of the straw in, in the fact that uh, COVID finally caught up with me and I had my oh, first no. official, official uh, dose of it, which was actually uh, annoyingly like quite firm. I had two weeks of it, which... Uh, oh. Yeah, lots of like looking out at the beautiful weather. I mean, I- I'm quite lucky that my bedroom looks out over a cherry tree. So I've got to watch that going to blossom. But um, yeah, certainly didn't get to make the most of it. Oh, my God. I mean, that that doesn't sound great. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, You know, you are not the first person that has told me in the last couple of weeks that they've gotten COVID. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you're probably maybe the ninth or maybe the tenth yeah. person. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did you? Is it the first time you had COVID? How, how, how did you yeah, find my, it? Did it, did my, it hit you fairly hard? Yeah, my first fish time. Um, I'm, I may have had it before without knowing, but um, yeah, it, it was. It, it, I, I certainly felt it. I certainly knew I had it. Um, oh, it was. Wouldn't recommend. No, it's not a great deal of fun. <laughs> no, not at all. Have you have you had it before, Sean? Uh, I very. Um, Happily had it. Um, I got tested positive on the 23rd of December. Um, oh so, and then for 11 days straight. And so my poor in-laws were en route to, to come and stay with us for five days and they had to do an about turn. And we had to isolate for the whole of Christmas after New Year. So it wasn't ideal, but um, you know, I know a lot of people who've had a lot worse than I did. So I'm mm. uh, a little bit lucky to, to come out the other side okay. Well, I do, I do have some friends who may actually very well take some great use out of that story. You know, a great way to get the in-laws to make a U-turn, eh? True, true. <laughs> now, whether, so, so whether I actually had it or a phantom COVID is Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, before we get too much into, uh, you know, the meat of the conversation, uh, why don't uh, we, we do some introductions first and foremost? So maybe we could start with Sean. Sure. Uh, if it works for you. So why don't you tell my audience who you are, uh, what it is that you do, and okay. we'll kind of take it from there. So uh, my name is Sean Millard, and I am the Chief Growth Officer at the Royal Mint. Fantastic. And how about yourself, Dom? My name is Dominic Jones, and I am the Creative Director of the Royal Mint. Fantastic. Well, that particular title has got some uh, some real gravitas, hasn't it? But I'm sure we'll probably get into that. But Sean, I'd, I'd love to kind of learn. I mean, you know, uh, Chief Growth Officer of the Royal Mint. I mean, what a title, right? Uh, this is this is this is something that is a CV killer, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> how did it how did it get to that? I mean, that's fascinating. It's not quite as lofty as the um, job description I, the headhunter gave me, which was take a thousand-year-old brand and transform it for the next thousand years, which was pretty weighty. Good um, God. I mean, talk about creating a dynasty. Yeah. Well, I, I think could have kind of either standing on the shoulders of giants is probably a better way of looking at it. Um, it, it. It's a fascinating opportunity. Um, I've got a my background um, sort of oscillates between sort of startups and, and large corporates. And so this for me is plus minus my dream job. Um, you know, you get the opportunity to take you know, a thousand year old brand 
uh, do a real audit of what it's about and what the capabilities are in this site in Landrissant in South Wales, and then determine you know which new businesses we need to create and then go and create them. So you, you can't ask for a huge amount more. Mm. Well, it sounds like quite, um, let's call it a juxtaposition uh, between kind of having a background in startups where you're not uh, conscious of uh, the, the, the historical actions of a company. Yeah. Um, you're kind of working on a fresh, you know, my background is startups as well uh, and tech. Uh, so we're never really very, in fact, it's kind of an active effort to ignore what you've done in the past and to recreate the future, essentially. Yeah. And I wonder when you made that transition into a, into a in perhaps the most heritage steeped company in British history uh, or institution rather I wouldn't even I wouldn't even call it a company it's a no, kind it's of a really British cool. institution um what is that transition like and and were there any uh vision shifts that you had to make do you have to be very conscious of what's happened in the past uh, to kind of you know work on the future with the Royal Mint I think what was fascinating and uh, and exciting was I was given a blank sheet of paper when I came in. Oh, so wow. the very first thing we did was to do essentially an audit of all the capabilities that were here. So I don't know how much you know about the Royal Mint, but we produce 3 billion coins a year for 26 different countries. We have fantastic craftsmen, which create 10 kilogram um, gold coins, which take 400 hours to produce um, of sort of beautiful craft um, and, and everything in between. So chemical engineers, engineering. So the bigger question was, you know, not what, you know, could the Royal Mint do? It was rather what it shouldn't do. And mm. um, so we took a direction of nearly about 400 different directions that actually we could do and narrowed that down through, you know, quite an, an engaging process down to two. Um, and what is very interesting, you talked about the history of the brand and you talked about, you know, it, wh where it comes from. It's got a number of different facets. One is it's this thousand year old brand um, Two, it's got this mandate, which is very different to many companies around creating jobs, because that's the reason it would relocate it from the Tower of London to Wales. And, and, and we also have to, as you say, protect this British institution. And these are mandates, you know, we, we, you know, we got from our shareholder, we work with our shareholder, the Treasury, uh, to achieve. So what's interesting is when you put those red lines around what you have to be and then put that authenticity of the brand in precious metals at the center of that, actually everything falls away and you're left with very, very few things to then really focus on. And we eventually came down to two, which was one to say, you know, we are always going to be about precious metals. So we wanted to see how we could vertically integrate and mm. create a sustainable precious metals element to the business. Um, but ultimately, we'll be, a, you know, whilst our mandate is creating currency for the UK government, you know, we are growing into a, a formidable consumer business. And we needed a, an additional um, uh, plank to the consumer businesses that we can, can, came, we've currently developed and are growing. Uh, and that's where we ended up on a loosely formed uh, precious metals focused consumer goods company, which is a huge mouthful. Um, and that's where the journey started to um, move towards jewelry. And, and that's where the journey started to um, first bump into Dom. Absolutely. And I think that's, a, uh, I mean, 
you know, uh, uh, Sean, you should be hosting the show. I mean, what a segue. That was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> He'll be much better at speaking about uh, the rest of the podcast than I will. No, I, no, no, no. It's a, it's, it's a joint effort. Well, uh, Dom, I think before, before we kind of talk about, you know, your involvement in, in the Royal Mint, the, the, I remember the first, the first chat that we had as a group together. Um, I kind of mentioned that I actually, I, I knew of you. Uh, before uh, you were mentioned uh, through through Taylor, through the introduction and whatnot, I was very familiar with your 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 past escapades in in the jewelry business. Uh, a fan as well. Um, so why don't you kind of tell my audience a little bit about your background as a jeweler and kind of how you got into it and some of the extraordinary accolades that you have? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of always been interested in jewelry since I was quite little. I was lucky that I am. Um, my uncle had a girlfriend when I was very young that was a jeweler. So from a, from the age of six, it was on my uh, list of things that I could do as a career. You know, I knew that you could make jewelry. So it was monkey trainer, astronaut, <laughs> jeweler. My monkey training abilities fell short. England didn't have a space program. So jeweler it was, you know. Um, and oh, God. I I followed that through and, and went and did a degree um, in it. Um, I studied at the Sir John Cass School of Art and Design, which was, sadly, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was kind of the last real kind of like home for craftsmanship. They did like, obviously, silversmithing and jewellery, like um, furniture making, musical instrument making, ceramics, enamelling, all of those sorts of things. And was where like Sean Lean and all of that kind of ilk of like fine jewelers came from. Um, oh, yeah, okay. I had a, I had a making kind of uh, uh, education in 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 traditional uh, making, um, and then yeah, I uh, uh, after that I kind of whilst that was going on, I had a very kind of uh, very yeah a, a dual love of fashion as well. Mm. Um, and when I came out, I, I kind of wanted to create jewellery for, for my friends and my, my kind of gen that were really interested in fashion. And at that moment, there didn't seem like much of a kind of, there was like a huge gap between like fine jewellery and high street jewellery. So I created, a, I created my own brand, which was like focused on kind of that market, um, which was like the, the first real, one of the first real like luxury um uh costume jewelry brands and um and it took off like from my first collection i i um i had people collect calling it in for amazing magazines off before i'd even finished the first collection i i got put forward and won the british fashion council's new gen award which um i was the first jewelry designer to ever win um uh it had previously only been for like fashion designers and kind of fashion accessories like handbags and stuff like that um and whilst presenting that first collection it got kind of um at fashion week it, 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 i was discovered by anna wintour wow. and it all kind of just exploded from there um yeah and i went on to win that award five times in a row um i did 10 collections under my own name and decided that i um had found myself in a position that I wasn't really particularly keen on going down for myself. So I wound it up on my 10th collection and started working with other brands after that. Interesting. So you, you've met Anna? Yeah, yeah a couple of How, times. What's she, what's she like? I think she's really interesting. 
Like, I mean, I, I don't know whether I've had the same experience of her as everyone gets. I was very lucky that that first, um, that first interaction was incredibly positive. Like I had a, I had a, I had a, uh, yeah, it was an, it was an amazing moment. I was what, 22 showing my first collection and it was kind of by chance, you know, um, I was, it, it was the first year that, um, that the, that London Fashion Week was showing at, um, at Somerset House. Before that, it had always been at the Natural History Museum and it kind of got a bit stale. And um, it was the first time Anna had been coming to London Fashion Week in five years, I think. And Really? Yeah. And because of that, she was being given a show, a tour of, of the new designers that were showing that season. And she wasn't really supposed to be speaking to me, actually. Um, she was only supposed to be speaking to two designers. And um, yeah, one of them had dropped the ball. Do date crash. I won't name who it was, but um, but they hadn't they'd 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 had a bit of a faux pas, but and I happened to be next to them, and she segued off of them and came over to me and oh, and started looking at my work, and it was a bit of a kind of like gasp moment because it was in her full kind of uh, September issue period when she was wearing big sunglasses at every given moment. She took off her sunglasses, and everyone in the room was like. <gasps> <laughs> it was it was it, it was it was quite common it was like something out of a film and she was talking to me about my work and she was like engaging with me and really liked it and I had these really beautiful um books made up with my campaign and um and she was asking me how how it was going and I was like it's going it and if I was selling in New York and my collection happened to be on sale in New York and I'd had personal orders um that the morning before from Rihanna so I was able to oh tell her that. And God. She, was like, she was like, oh, well, we love Rihanna. And I was like, yeah, I'm quite fond of her too now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are. And then, yeah, and I'd happened to have all of these really beautiful business cards and booklets made up that had been delivered. So it was very, like, uh, synchronous, that's the right word. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and I gave her my cards and then was quite shocked. And then half an hour later, I got a call from Mark Holgate from American Vogue and she passed on all of my details and wanted me to come and do full interviews with the team. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, what, what, she, what a story. Yeah. And she was going around telling people that I was her favourite discovery of the season. So I don't know whether my, my interactions with her have been the same as, as a lot of people's, but yeah, she was really, uh, really, really supportive. My goodness. My goodness. And I, I, think, I think probably a question that, you know, a, a young creative might potentially think about because you. Uh, it was something I wanted you to mention how old you were when you were doing all this. You know, you were you were extraordinarily young. You yeah. still are very young, but you were very young back then. And um, I wonder because the the industry isn't short of aspiring young jewelers. You know, there, mm. there are there are loads of people out there who are trying to create that name for themselves. I'm sure there's reams and reams and reams of young guys from the UK and around the world who want orders from Rihanna. They want mm. to be discovered by people like Anna Winter and kind of have that break. And I wonder, and this is a tough question, I think, for any creative to answer, but what was it about what you were doing that caused this explosion, for lack of a better word? What do you believe it was? I think it was because I was very, like, it was, it was, the moment you know i i had managed to create an aesthetic that that 
captured the feeling of what was happening that ha- wasn't being expressed in jewelry, you know? Mm. Um, and what, I what found, was that feeling? And, well, it was, I mean, at that, at that moment in time, it was this quite punk aesthetic, you know, it was, mm. it was strong, bold forms and shapes that, um, that, that was being reflected in, in the fashion industry, but wasn't being reflected in accessories. Um, I think I had, for all of the skills I'd learned at my university, equally I'd made networks and I'd, and I'd been going out and socialising in London and had built like friends that I could call upon and wasn't afraid to ask favours, wasn't afraid to kind of interact with the, with the culture that I was part of, you know. Um, and because of that, when I came to do my first collection, I had, I, and I didn't come to London knowing anyone, but for my first collection campaign, I had Matt Irwin, who was the best photographer at the time. Like he was the coolest guy shooting the covers of the magazines. And I had Katie Schillingford, who was one of the best stylists. I had like Alice Delau. I had like all of the best models because I'd met them all. And, and it was, it, and I'd made friends with like people like Kim Jones through, through it. And so I had all of this kind of, network that was helping and supporting me because they believed in what I did so it's it was a, that combination of of having a traditional skill set being part of the the culture and having an understanding of how to present something in a way that felt luxury you know and I think that combination together hadn't hadn't been realized in jewelry at that point so it felt it felt stand out. So it was kind of the right thing at the right time, at the right place. Very, very much, very much so. And I, th- I think that's why it kind of exploded on me in the way that it did. Interesting. And I think probably the word that you were looking for earlier, uh, uh, Dom, would probably be serendipitous, right? It's, uh, that was the word, yes. You know. <laughs> very similar to the meeting we had. Yeah. Very much so. And I think that was kind of what I was going to ask next is mm-hmm. you know you've got this interesting background and kind of if if people go online and because i didn't actually realize that your collections were, were were in the past they were fairly old and you know it's uh, it's not something that you've been up to fairly recently um you look at the aesthetic and the first thing and i i mean this in no disrespectful way but the first thing that i i can tell you the first thing i didn't think of was that's the guy that should go with the royal mint you know <laughs> yeah that's uh, that's I mean, really a great kind of pairing right there. That's not what I thought. I thought, oh my God, this is the guy that needs to do like a collaboration with Slayer or something, right? <laughs> you know, that's what. <laughs> well, there's been a bit, yeah. I mean, that was my lockdown project was that I, I finally had some time on my hands and I have always wanted to put out the those collections that I did in my early 20s again, because then I, I when I closed it down, there wasn't as easy access to selling online and everything was a bit more complicated and it, that was the project that kind of kept me sane over lockdown that collection that you that you saw yeah I designed when I was like 22 you know it was uh, it's t- 12 years old um so it's not <laughs> there's been a lot of there's been a lot that's happened between then and I've worked with Fabergé I've worked with Astley Clark I've worked with Vincent London so there's been a range of highs and lows and commerciality and 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 even the work that I did myself went on a, 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 a ten further collections of of a journey, you know. Mm. 
And I wonder kind of how does how does the career and maybe this is a probably a good point to bring to bring Sean in because I'd 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 love to I'd love to understand how this happened first and foremost. How did you guys get in contact with Dom and and Dom how did how did that conversation come along what was the feeling from your side it's, it's to, to me that, that there is you know you're a very talented jeweler Dom you know you are you know a very progressive kind of you know commercial and corporate thinker how the how did this happen this is this well, is crazy I, stuff I can tell you how we got that and I think then Dom can also then pick up about how he you reflected on what the wrong end is, which is, I think, the, the most amazing bit of this story. Yes, um, we, as, as I said, we 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 decided to go into this this market, into this jewelry market. Um, but to be honest, we wanted to do it in the right way and not rush into things. Hmm. So we've been given some very strong advice by some great people, and that's one of the wonderful things about the world. I mean, you get access to to fantastic people because they want to support you. And they all said the same thing. You need a creative director. Um, this is not something which you're going to emerge from coins. It's a very different um, feeling. You, you know, at the moment, you're about collecting and investing. This is about expressing. It's a completely different mindset and need. And so you know, we, we started to look around to say, well, how do we know what a creative director should be? And how do we know how to recruit one? And someone in my team, a lady called Sue, said, look, I'll put you in contact with someone I've met once before, a guy called Dominic Jones, and, you know, maybe he'd be useful to talk to. And I'm okay, fine. So I think she contacted him on LinkedIn. Um, we swapped numbers, and I, I just gave him a call. And the objective was to say, look, help us, you know, I've seen your CV, help us work out how to hire a creative director. That was, the, right. that was what I was asking him. And it was one of those funny conversations where we just, got on quite well and um, that conversation led to another conversation and you know I spoke to to my CEO Anne and I said look it's just really easy this conversation and I think it'd be great for you to hear what his view on on this area is because he's not doesn't seem to be the traditional creative director that I've heard about he's very broad because he's run his own business he he looks at things from all angles not just the the creative direction of the jury and that was something which we well, I and, and, and we found very interesting because it isn't a market that we had exposure to. And so that started a series of conversations which then led into, uh, well, okay, that's, that's great, but maybe what do you think about the Royal Mint and how would you look at this? And then that moved into, okay, that's looking quite good. Um, maybe we should explore this further. And that led to um, where we are today. The, so as you said, it, completely serendipitous um but you know what's meant to be is meant to be and um i think um that evolution of not going out and hiring a creative director and rather it being a conversation which evolved i think um helped dom understand the role mint and helped us to understand you know how to go forward but yeah it was fun it was a wonderful experience i mean yeah you're totally right i mean it sounds very kind of natural it's you know it's like well you're talking to this guy about you know let's hire a creative director and you realize well hang on a second he kind of fits the bill here yeah. uh this could be uh, this could be fairly interesting and I, I i wonder don what was your reaction when you got reached out by the royal mint you started learning about these projects that they were working on what they wanted to do what was kind of going through your head yeah i mean when i first got the link the <laughs> linkedin message i, I presumed it was going to be some sort of like 
collaboration or profile or something. I wasn't really sure. I was like, yeah, of course I'll have a conversation with you. Um, and I think, I think it was, it was just quite a fun conversation to have, like explaining what a creative director does, explaining what my take on a creative director does, because I, yeah, as, as Sean says, like, I think I come at it, it from, from quite a, like, a, I come at it from as if it was more like a fashion creative director than a, a jewellery creative director, you know? It's Could you explain the wide... difference according to you? Well, in, in jewellery, it tends to be a lot more kind of tight and close to the product, whereas, like, because of my background, because I won those awards, like, uh, the, the awards that I won when I was younger meant that I had a much kind of broader education. Like, I went on to part of the, like, London Shrones Initiative, which meant that I was... Um, exposed to like buyers all around the world and I got an understanding of um, of of sales and all of those sorts of things and kind of a much greater understanding of like what the marketplace looks like from a commercial point of view and then through in my previous roles like I had also spent a lot of time getting to know manufacturing and mm. and how to work with manufacturing on a kind of like international scale um, and I think those those elements paired with my kind of fine jewellery background like mean that I, I I do think I have quite a unique way of working um in the industry um but yeah it was just it was it was just a really interesting conversation and 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 as it developed my my thinking around it developed and I it kind of turned into like what would I do with this and how would I approach this and and then and then I was hired to to do a a, a kind of like a, a kickoff strategy of like what actually would I do with this and where where would I look at and what are the references I would pull from and what should the jewel what should jewelry for the Royal Mint be and look like and feel like and what is its reason for existing, you know? Um, Interesting. And one of the things I think was sorry, carry on. No, no, please continue. I think one of the things which was also interesting as that evolved, we we have a man, as I said before, we've got a mandate to look at creating jobs. We do uh, fantastic um, things at the Royal Mint. One of the things we were looking to do was to create a, uh, a, a hub of industry here in, in Lantrissen, using transferring a lot of the skills which, which we had. And so one of the interesting sets of conversations we, we were having with Don was, okay, we want to go here. Um, but we also want to manufacture here, and no one's doing that. And mm. so there was this dual conversation between you know, the creative direction and vision with how do we execute that creative direction and vision. And we were really realistic at the beginning when we first, you know, and, and Don was there when we did the plan to the board and said, look, this is what we look to achieve. We were quite, um, quite conservative on what we thought we could make on site. I think we had had an aspiration within five years of maybe like sort of 50, 60, 70%. Um, and in the first year, maybe 10%, like find one thing we can make. Mm. And what's been fascinating over this journey is we're now going to this launch collection, 75% of the products will be made here on site, wow. um, which is a, a complete shift in the industry in the UK. And, and But without in any way um, shifting away from Dom's vision. So it's very much been following that vision but then having to work out how do you bring that to life physically mm. 
Interesting. Fascinating. And you know what, before I kind of get into, because I'd really love to learn a little bit more about the collection of what it is that you got, because this is genuinely something that I, I don't know yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, holding myself back from just bursting into asking you guys, you know, what, what the hell are you making? But I'd, I'd love to know, Sean, from, from you. It's, it's an interesting direction, I think, for the Royal Mint to go in. And I think the best decision in 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 my opinion if 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 i was kind of you know thinking about it from my perspective from someone who's always dealing with what are we doing tomorrow not about what's happened yesterday or what we're doing now what do we do tomorrow and working with innovation and working with you know technological development and all that sort of stuff um i i i wonder the because this is a conversation you and i had i think in the first chat that we had which was you were telling me about this, um, essentially this understanding of where currency, physical currency and coins is moving in the future. Yeah. Um, and we had a little conversation about how yourself and, and the Royal Mint believe that that's going to become redundant very, very soon, physical currency. Um, and this is essentially the future of the, of the Royal Mint. This is a what we would call kind of a pivot, right? Um, this is the new direction on. I, I, I wonder how, how did that conversation go down in the Royal Mint? How, how did you guys come to that conclusion? And was it a weird kind of thing or was it just like, Hey, this is going to happen and this is what we need to do. Uh, so it's again, a sort of a journey question. I mean, I think the first thing is we, we're very honest here, um, with our employees and, and with everyone else the decline in currency is, is a fact. And you know that because how many coins are in your pocket right now? I would imagine not very many. No. Um, and so we, we we actively and are proactively managing that decline. Uh, the guy, Andrew, who runs this, sees it as, as landing, a, landing a, a jet, you know, landing that jet whilst we take off other businesses. And I think that's a really lovely analogy. Um, we will always make coins for the UK government as they require. So that is our reason for being. Um, and that, that will continue for as long as we are required to do it. I think the interesting thing is we've equally gone into other businesses. So this isn't a, a roll the dice one business that we're going for. We've got a, um, a, a commemorative coin business, which is incredibly successful. Um, mm. We've got a, a precious metals investment business, which you know, due to a number of factors is growing exponentially at the moment. And what makes this interesting from the jewelry perspective is, you know, we're really got a lot of very high net worth um, gold based products that are in, in great demand that balance this craft and balance investment and balance history. And, and that is one of the interesting areas where this um, jewelry um, proposition fits in. So it is a pivot, but it's quite a deliberate uh, positioning. So we spent mm -hmm. a lot of time analyzing the market, the system, where we could go. And I, I think I said before, these different consumer need sets of collecting, investing, and expressing interlock quite nicely but are quite heavily differentiated. So they are different revenue streams, they're different um, ways in which the Roman can express itself. And I think what is interesting about this brand and this institution is it can encompass those different things under this umbrella. 
Um, so it was more a case of this is the right new path to take alongside what we're doing and um, uh, uh, suddenly. Fascinating. And it's interesting you kind of mentioned those three uh, metrics, you know, expressing, uh, collecting and investing, because I, I, I don't uh, there, there are kind of very few products that, uh, or single product categories that encompass all three of those metrics. And I think jewelry is, is probably one of the very few that you can do all three with one product, especially if it's a fine, or not especially only if it's a fine, a precious metal like a, a gold or a silver 925 or a palladium or whatever it might be. Um, you know, and if you release it in kind of limited quantities as well, all of a sudden it's an investment. Um, and if it's designed by someone like Dom, then it can definitely be an expression. Um, but I, I, I'd love to kind of learn about, um, you know, essentially what were you guys thinking initially when you came up with the idea of a jewelry collection within the Royal Mint and how did that change during conversations with, with Dom and, and maybe we can kind of get a bit of a, a dialogue. I mean, I think best Dom take you through where, where the sort of the genesis of the ideas, I think the point you um, make around the sort of the asset um, yes. side of things and the collector and the investor, um, I think what was wonderful is watching Dom reflect on that, um, spending time in the museum um, to, to, as the genesis of ideas. But I think Dom's much, much better equipped to talk you through how he came from what is, you know, the history and the purpose of being to the expression of that in the, the collection which is, is designed. Totally. Um, yeah, so I, 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 one of the first things I went to do uh, when I did was to spend time in the museum because the Royal Mint has its own museum. And I mean, it was very clear to me kind of like, I, I wanted to reflect the reasons that the Royal Mint existed and the reasons why the jewellery existed. And to me, the, the, the takeaways that I got from spending time from there was that it existed to create a uh, a place where you had security and trust in a store of value of precious material and all, equally you had um, a kind of like illustrative uh, storyteller of history um, and and also I quite liked that it was kind of also one of the first times of portraiture in a way you know um, and so I kind of like took those three kind of um, areas and have kind of separated them out. Um, so it's not just jewellery, it's also jewellery and homeware. To, um, and that was something that was very clear from the beginning was that they're, they're, we wanted to not just do jewellery, but to, eat, to, to start with homeware from the beginning as well. Mm. And, um, but what do you what do you mean by homeware? Because I I know that there's probably a lot of Gen Zers well, and uh, and millennials that have no idea what you mean by that. Well, it, that's a good question. To be honest, um, it it was more it's more objects and 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 that was something that I kind of wanted to um, to define as well. Because uh, when when I first think of jewelry brands that do homeware. It's uh, like it doesn't necessarily always give me the best of connotations. Like I have I had this like worrying vision of like of this kind of like scattergun approach was if you've just opened up your like posh Christmas crackers and there's a little this and a little that everywhere. And, and I think what was really nice was that um, when we talked through it, we kind of came up with this concept of like doing it with authenticity and to take each section and kind of build out from there. So the first section that. 
um, that we're looking at is stationary because mm. uh, it reflects this idea of this illustrative storytelling. Um, and, and, and so we're creating the tools that, uh, that, that you would use to, to do that, you know, and, um, and we were able to, um, to look, to partner with this really interesting, um, young, uh, British brand makers cabinet who do really uh, amazing, like, um, stationary that like comes from like a very like engineering, like, like mindset is looks like it's like jewelry you know yeah i think know i them? know this brand yeah yeah i'm pretty sure do i do do they make like brass um yeah uh, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah i know this yeah i follow yeah, them so, on instagram they're amazing yeah, yeah so we've par- so we've partnered with them and we've uh, redeveloped their products using um our own materials so like bronze and silver and re- i've re- reworked with them from a jeweler's design perspective looking at their kind of their engineering design perspective products and so we're going to and we're also partnering with a, a one of the oldest silver pen makers yard of lead from uh, british silver pen makers so in in that area it's a really amazing opportunity for the for for us to not only support and collaborate but also with um with makers cabinet for instance we're 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 producing all of their product in the UK, which they've never been able to do before. They've, they've never been able to to make their um, their products in, inside the UK because they haven't been able to find like partners um, to do that. It's uh, it fair to say you, Don was a little horrified when he said, "Look, strategically, we want to go down the, the jewelry area and also the sort of broadly precious metal based home accessories." Um, and what was again very interesting was in taking that challenge and saying, okay, if that's where we're going to go. And I come from a jewelry background. Look at it rather sort of um, bejeweling your home rather than you know functional pillows and things like that. You as you dress yourself or express yourself, similar kind of objects to you know some of them may be functional, but some of them are just there to look beautiful on your desk. Mm. And I think what became also interesting is. We knew we want. We knew we wouldn't be able to do everything at the moment. Uh, we knew that from the start. And one of the other you know, um, directions we set ourselves was to support British talent, um, I- enable British talent. And and when Don did his first pitch, um, he um, he used an, an image of Maker's Cabinet when he did his first pitch to the board. And it just so happened that, you know, they, they, they got in contact. Again, one of these conversations, which then evolved. And um, as Dom said, we're now making their product um, and will be making that product for their for themselves as well as us on site. There's almost a contract manufacturer process. And um, that's an area which we're equally interested in, to lead with a wonderful um, brand proposition, but equally use the capabilities we have on this site to support other British jewelers, to support other British manufacturer in this sector. Yeah. And it's I, I, like, as soon as I got my head around it, I found it really interesting, you know, like I, whilst I haven't done much myself, like I did spend time um, consulting at Fabergé and they, oh, the, wow. one of the really amazing things about Fabergé was that he designed everything, you know, from light switches to to like to all sorts of weird and wonderful things yeah so kind of like I, the uh philip stark of of jewelry right you yeah, know uh, yeah everyone thinks of, of him as this as this like very like ornate eggs but he he was very practical as well and and liked applying his 
approach to all sorts of areas of design. So uh, as soon as as soon as we worked out a way of doing it with authenticity and credibility, and then it's been a really fun fun area to go down. And I'm really looking forward mm. to watching that expand um, and and grow. Um, mm. And to apply a kind of a, a, a jeweler's thought process and design process and making process to functional objects. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and so that was so that so that that's how I divided it. So the 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 homeware was these was was the first exploration of this illustrative storytelling, and then for the jewelry, I wanted to kind of take it back to this very like understated simplicity of it being about um, about a store of value in in a precious material and kind of really celebrate this idea of like having clarity and trust and because another thing that um that is interesting is that the jewelry industry as it's kind of moved on to online and there's been this kind of like in the last decade ish there's been a kind of a, a, a quite a race to the bottom in a lot of ways of the mm. open up opening up of this mid market demi fine like contemporary jewelry where um where everything's gone gone very low value and there's a lot of kind of like uh misuse of terminology out there online um and there's not a lot of like clarity so i i really liked the idea of bringing it back to solid metals like sold like having um transparency on the weight of the metal like and having this kind of like very like um it's it, it's not a new way of working you know like it, it's actually like it's a very it, like it, say for example in countries like india like it holding your wealth in in your gold uh, on your body is 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 part of their heritage but it's something that i felt had been lost it, um, in in a kind of like design approach you know um so that was so that was my kind of rationale in in the starting point and so through doing that i kind of like took um the it's called an institutional bar it's the kind of very kind of um it's the it's the gold the gold bar that you think of when you think of a gold bar you know sure. the, the the kind of like uh the brick you know yeah but I, but what I did was I, I inverted that and I turned it upside down so that it has, so that it, and I warped and softened and curved and kind of manipulated all of the angles and form. So that it then becomes this very soft, gentle form that um, has this undercut to it, this kind of, a, this lip, so that all of the jewellery in the collection looks like it's slightly floating off of the skin. So it's, it's like this, it's this kind of like, slightly surreal feeling of these strong bold like understated shapes but that look like they're slightly floating off of you um it's the kind of jewelry that like that 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 you can be sat with someone having dinner with them for and and you won't have realized that you've been looking at it all night and at the end of the meal you'll ask them about it you know You'll be, you would have you would have been like I've been looking at that. What is that? You know, as opposed to this kind of like ostentatious kind of flashy flashy piece that you instantaneously notice. You know, it's very understated. Like it's kind of like, um, yeah. It's uh, it, it. I see that this this uh, initial collection is for people that love like understated luxury. You know? Yeah. 
that 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 value craftsmanship and and but aren't necessarily like ostentatious. Mm. I think the other thing which we found so much on the brand that we're trying to be is it, it's it was an authentic um, representation of what the Royal Mint was, whilst being very different. You know, we weren't then. You know, these are heirloom quality items. They're not fast fashion there's this collection is meant to last for generations and it's been that's been the thought process which has been it's so true to what the royal mint is Mm. and actually there's another bit which is quite interesting we were mentioning around the store of value of business of fashion mckinsey did a report so i guess about 70 percent of the world's gold and jewelry is is unbranded but 30 percent that is is growing very quickly so actually this this collection and this concept sit really neatly in between those two things, both the store of value and the growing brand aspirations of store and the value. So, you know, as this has evolved, it 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 so neatly fits by by um, you know, by um, Dominic's vision with the brand that we are trying to be and we are. It also the simplicity of the design also was quite intentional in the fact that like it allows me to or not me. It allows the jewellery um, space to talk about the things that it, uh, that um, that make it unique. You know, there's so much that is different about the way that this jewellery is produced um, and manufactured that that would quite easily get skipped out if it's this highly decorative piece. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that um, m- m- almost all jewellery f- is is cast these days and uh, and. And our jewelry is is um, is struck. It's like it's ca- is that casting. forging. Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's 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 the same process that they use for jewelry, which is it's like using a really, really, really like high pressure stamping. You know, um, right? Which, in in coin making, is that called proofing? So <laughs> you may have to speak to um, Gordon about that. So we call it striking. Um, okay. So you create a die, and then you know what's fascinating is this process was how um, you know, I mean, historically our jewelry was made. You take a hammer and you hit hit, hit a form, and there comes your jewelry. When uh, when when jewelry became more um, mechanized or, or more mass produced, it's just not cost effective to have these big machines. Um, so as as Dom says, was saying, you you then started to cast, and then a lot of the industry then moved uh, to the Far East, where labor is a lot cheaper. We are lucky um, in that the coin production process and the capital um, stru- capital uh, investment and the assets we have here are, are equally designed for um, striking coins and creating medals as they are for creating jewellery. And it was just um, uh, the, the, the team here had the challenge of saying, well, how can you transform that skill from one thing to the other? And it is a better quality product it's denser it's like 30 percent denser than um uh, a, a traditional product and um it, it's equally we you know we're using solid matters it's uh, because with with casting you you there's all sorts of things that can go wrong like porosity mm. is when there's bubbles in the alloy um and that that cannot show straight away it can it can um it can then bleed out and kind of your, your piece can kind of corrode and it's been really interesting. I've been wear testing um, uh, one of the products for like probably about three months now. And 
it's not like any other piece of jewelry I've ever had. Like the density of it just feels like, I mean, I'm quite sensitive to jewelry, so I probably don't have the, I probably have a different uh, perception to, to the general public, but it's, you can feel the density on it and it doesn't take on scratches in the same way. It's, it's held its polish so much more than I, than it, it would have done if it was, if it was cast. It's really interesting. And um, we're, it, we're also like pulling like lots of like other really interesting um, techniques that have been used in coin making, like we're, uh, that we're developing and are going to be layering into the products, things like, um, Caustics, which um, is uh, a really amazing kind of process that has been developed by um, Gordon at the Royal Mint, which is uh, kind of controlling light. So um, when you know when you have a glass of water that sits on a, t- a table and the light shines on it and it mm. throws off those kind of flashes of light on the table. Mm. Um, so Caustics is controlling that throw off of light. And he's kind of developed this way of, um, of striking using the same way that you would with coins, this uh, illustration, so that it's it's un, it's almost unnoticeable on the surface, but when it catches the light, it projects off this illustration onto the surface. Oh which my is, god! And, and what we're thinking about with with these processes, because um, which have, which have been developed for the security of coins that we can apply to the security of, of jewelry, because in a, in the day and age where anyone can kind of buy a laser engraving uh, machine the 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 security that hallmarks give you isn't isn't what it used to be and how can we as the secure the 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 home of trusted secure um precious metals can we develop things that are more secure even than hallmarks you know you know, I have to say, I've 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 kind of got about a million different thoughts uh, right now, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna just make a quick comment about the homeware thing because when you were kind of describing that to me, I have to say I was in equal measures of relief and excitement. Uh, I was I was terrified that you were going to say that you were going to release a collection of sterling silver demitasse spoons, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh Jesus, you know, I I hope that's not what homeware means. You know, this is going to be this is going to be weird. Uh, so, but uh, you know, I I love the idea of making a jeweler's approach to uh, productivity tools, uh, which is kind of how I would uh, describe it. Um, and I think that there's this massive um, interest nowadays in the things that you interact with on a day to day basis. Uh, and I think that this was kind of accelerated as a result of COVID, because uh, you know during the pandemic, people were in lockdown; they were having significantly more. FaceTime and interaction time with the things that they use. Um, and what we notice is the episodes that we had done in the past where we talk about, I mean, some of the main things we talk about is kind of craftsmanship, things that are made by hand, and being very open and honest about, is this for you? This is what's good about it, and this this is what isn't. But for us, we really care about that personalization, that, 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 uh, that artisanal touch about a lot of these things. So for example, um, in a recent post, we uh, we paid a lot of attention to digital um, uh, or, excuse me, technological tools that you use on a day-to-day basis, whether it be a keyboard or a mouse. And we went on the search for some of the best items that you can buy. And we found this company that makes these, uh, these handmade um, uh, mice. 
or mouses, whatever you want to call them. And this is kind of, you know, uh, leather that's been kind of hand applied and aluminium that's been uh, hand shaped. It's, I mean, it's it's kind of a piece of jewellery, but for your desk, um, that's fairly functional. So there's this massive move nowadays to kitting out your work surface to allowing the things that you use on a day-to-day basis to express what you care about in your day-to-day life. Uh, And that's what we're really starting to learn through the comments that we get through our listeners, through our audience. And I think that's a really smart and and interesting way to go into. And I'm a massive fan of, uh, of Maker's Cabinet as well. They're absolutely extraordinary. Um, and don't you guys find it amazing that in such a digital world, the demand of analog tools seems to have skyrocketed in the last few years. People are really wanting to engage physically with what they're doing. The idea of handwriting is kind of coming back as well. Uh, we did a collab with uh, Monty Grappa uh, not too long ago. Um, and the reception that we got from that was absolutely extraordinary. People wanting to have that pen that they can sign certain things with. Uh, they don't want to do it on a PDF or a or an iPad. They want to print it out on beautiful paper. They want to sign particular things by hand. It means something to them. It's really extraordinary. Totally. Uh, one of the things that we're looking at doing next will be photo frames. And we were having this conversation about, um, about analog and digital yeah. and how you can't buy film anymore because the the, yeah. the Kodak was slow to move on to digital and then they've been slow to notice that everyone wants to take wants to take um film photographs again and everyone's printing their images and and Mm. and shooting on film and 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 wanting to share their their images beyond just the the endless reels that you have on your um in your iCloud you know all my daughter's friends have got Polaroid cameras yeah 10, 12 years old, and they all they want is those Polaroid cameras. It's, yeah, there's, it's, a, a, there's an amazing a, shift. It's extraordinary. And I think this kinesthetic approach um, to product design is really where things are, are, are moving. And I think the success of products like the Fujifilm Instax and stuff like that, um, you know, these are all things. Yeah, have you, have you just, have, am I the only one that's kind of seeing this thing pop up every now and then? So do you know what's happening? My iPad <laughs> seems to recognize hand movements. So if I wave, You're kidding me. it goes waves. And if I put my thumbs up, it seems to put a thumb up. So oh I don't my God. quite I know mean, that's, how that's working. But um, I mean, that's yeah, fantastic. Not me I, I, I absolutely love it. That's fantastic. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I thought that it was Zoom congratulating me on making a good point. I mean, that was... <laughs> I was like, bloody hell, they're listening which to you me. Which you are, which you are. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I do see that, the, I mean, the success of products like the Fujifilm Instax, uh, for example, is kind of the perfect example of <coughs> people wanting a kinesthetic um, uh, interaction with their digital products. And I think that's really fascinating and interesting to me. I mean, one of the things I see a lot of my colleagues and friends doing nowadays is they will handwrite their notes just as an experience thing, because they've invested in a beautiful notepad, they've invested in a beautiful pen. And when they're finished, they'll take their phone, they'll take a picture of their notes, it will digitally scan into their, uh, into their iCloud, and that's how they'll use it from then on. But to have the experience of writing it down, they'll they'll kind of the way that I put it, it's the inconvenience of beauty. 
Um, that's how I put it. I mean, is handwriting your notes and doing that, is it the most efficient way of putting down your information? Of course it's not. Uh, it's not the best way to do it, but it's the inconvenience of, 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 the, of that beauty of your interaction. And to that, it kind of breeds a, a level of convenience. Um, so yeah, it's, and it's consideration. an interesting thing. It's, yeah. I think it's, you know, that, that consideration, taking a couple of steps back, not being instantaneous. Um, you know, I, I quite like that idea of writing a note and then, and then sending it. That's, you know, instead of posting it, there's also quite an interesting halfway house or taking a photo of the note you've written and then sending that. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. So I think it's, it's fascinating to see that you have technology that's moving faster than ever. I think I said in our in our first chat that um, you know technology has been moving so fast in the last twenty years uh, that if if the car industry was to move at the same speed of innovation as the smartphone industry, then cars should be able to travel four times the speed of light. Uh, so we're having the biggest boom in technological innovation we've ever seen in human history, at a speed of which which is kind of untenable. But we're also seeing the same people embracing that innovation are also embracing a, a kind of, you know, these relics of a time gone by, whether it's a beautiful watch uh, that's been, you know, an analog watch. People aren't using their phones to tell the time anymore, thank God. Um, whether it's a wired headphones are kind of making a huge comeback right now, actually. Uh, the idea of sitting down and you know, putting on a beautiful pair of audio file quality headphones and listening to your music, a vinyl is making a huge comeback. Um, You know, we did uh, an episode all about that. And these ways of interacting with your with your stuff is kind of changing. And I think there's something there's beauty in imperfection and there's beauty in, in organic, you know, there's like, there's, there's, when something is so pristine and so crystal clear it's almost like well it loses its character it's almost offensive it, in a way extent. you yeah. know yeah I, I i mean for me personally like the the, the you want to have that connection to 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 an organic experience you know like you want to be able to touch the thing you want to be able to hold it and feel it feel its weight and experience it you know yeah yeah i mean you know someone uh, said something fairly interesting the other day they were like um uh, have you guys seen St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican? Um, yeah, I was there. I was there just very, very recently. But because of COVID, I took a photo, managed to take a photo of myself with literally no one behind me. It's, Are you kidding you know, me? Yeah, I used to live in Rome. So it was it's consistently packed and you take hours to get in there. But I've got this wonderful photo that my wife's taken me standing outside and there you cannot see a soul. It's, wow. It was incredible. Uh, but yes, it's, it's an amazing place to visit. I mean, it's kind of one of those environments, right, where, I mean, I think I was reading about a story of um, the art in St. Peter's Basilica uh, is so grand, so large and so ornate uh, that most of it was created over generations of artists. So an artist would dedicate his entire life to creating this one piece of art and he would die while creating it and his son would then take over and continue finishing off the art that his father was working on, and then he would die. And then it, it took generations of artists to finish that work, and you go there, and it's this, I, I don't know if you, if you felt this, I'm sure you did, Sean, but you go there and it's awe-inspiring. You, it's larger than life when you kind of go there. 
for me, it's, 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 you can't comprehend it. You can't take it in in one visit. You can't take it in in 20 visits each time you walk through that place. It's, um, it's just, the, it's magnificent in every way. And um, I think, yeah, the, the history behind trying to achieve that um, was, was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And I think it kind of goes back to that thing, right? Because I very seldom hear people saying, you know, I went to the Burj Khalifa and I was totally knocked on my ass over there. I couldn't believe that people were able, I think from an engineering perspective, people are quite amazed that they were able to make something so tall, but you don't hear people talking about going to something like that, you know, kind of a concrete monstrosity. Um or you get a lot of people about, talking about the fountains outside the Burj Khalifa. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. are quite fun. <laughs> they are quite fun, right? All those flashing lights and all that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I th- you just don't talk about people having these borderline spiritual uh, experiences when you go somewhere like St. Peter's Basilica or the kind of innumerable amounts of other examples in the world where, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Petra in Jordan or whatever it might be, these, these things that were made by hand, that were made by people that have imperfections, they they think, touch us in a different way. Yeah, and uh, uh, one of my th- what I was thinking of just then when you were saying that is um, is the Barbican Centre, which mm. is like a concrete like could be a monstrosity, but it's so beautiful. And one of the things that makes it so beautiful is the surface of it, the, the fact that every single surface is hand chiselled. They is did really? all of those indentations by hand. So all of those, all of that texture is is imperfect and it's organic, and it breaks up the the, the harshness of those lines. Um, yeah, it was. It, it, I, I think that those sorts of things can really exemplify and kind of elevate stuff. It that 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 process has never been allowed to be done again because so many uh, so many of the people that worked on it blinded themselves from the chips of the concrete flying off. And it was originally they originally pitched it to be made out of marble, um, and they it was over budget, so they decided to make it in concrete. But then it actually ended up costing so much more because of the surface finishing. Wow. They could have done it in marble, the whole of the Balkan estate for the set, for less money. Jesus, that's extraordinary. I'm never going to look at the Barbican Centre the same way now. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. So, so Dom, I think. Would you be able to tell me kind of what the uh, what the jewelry collection is going to be? What what are you guys gonna gonna have in there? So you've mentioned this. Is it a necklace that you were talking about, which is going to be a a play on the gold bullion uh, bar? So all all of the all all of the pieces kind of play off of this form that I've created. Okay. Um. So there's going to be it. This first this first um collection is like very much a kind of like uh a kind of spine a kind mm. of like a core collection you know um so we've looked at like lots of staples that, um things like band rings like that you you might want to have as a really beautiful wedding band um we've got like hoops we've got studs we've got necklaces we've got cuffs the cuff is one of my favorite pieces um it's it, it's uh on on the in on the inside curve of the of the cuff We've got um, beautiful coin text um, poetry. Um, oh my God. Uh, and, God, am I going to be able to recite it off of the top of my head? But, um, you must, it, you must. Give it, like, give it a go, give it a go. I think it's like gold, 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 molten, hammered, beaten, rolled, heavy to touch, light to hold, 
bartered, borrowed, stolen and stolen or sold or something. Oh, look at that. Congratulations. That's that's definitely not Bravo, mate. Thrilled that I wasn't asked to decide that. That isn't correct, but it's a a really... uh, the, the silver and the gold both have um, really old poems about the, the material. So it's, again, it's a celebration and a kind of very understated, it's it's secretly placed so that only the wearer knows it ha- it's there. As well, on the inside of the cuff, we've got these um, these notches to, de- to denote, like, uh, well, it's, it's different for every single piece because every single piece is different weighted, but it divides the piece into um, designations of weight so this idea that you can you can see five grams of eighteen karat gold um, in each section, and it came from this kind of um, uh, this idea of like um, of again holding value. A friend of mine had a cuff um, that his that his um, father made for him for his twenty first when he went off travelling, so that if he ever got into a sticky situation, he it had a notch on, um, and so that if he got if he lost everything, he could get a certain amount sawed off and he knew that it was that value of material wherever he was in the world you know and it's it's that kind of uh, that idea of um of seeing and knowing and visually understanding what what the value of what you're wearing is fantastic so you're going to kind of have earrings you're going to have the necklaces yeah. bracelets rings so that so essentially the the the, the, the whole shebang then yeah completely Fantastic. Fantastic. And just to kind of clarify that all of these items are going to kind of be solid metals. You're not going to be having any 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 plating or or, or anything. What we are going to do is um, for the gold, as uh, we're going to have nine carat available as well, which is kind of unusual. Um, But we liked the idea of like of rather than doing entering into gold plating to, to 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 have a range of of value in scale and in purity of metal. I think one of the things which Don had discussed right at the beginning was this concept of democratizing. Um, So we've got these fantastic processes um, that are innovative and unique and ordinarily would then be available at the higher price points and um, because that level of um, engineering you would expect to then go into more higher price points. And what's been fantastic in this is to say actually the only difference you're going to have is the metal and the various weights, and that that's the differentiator for you. So you can you can enter into these um, products in these categories based on either where you want to where you where you feel you want to from an aesthetic, um, but equally from an asset value, or equally because I just can't afford to get into eighteen carat, but I can buy that exact same thing in silver, um, and that I think is quite a unique approach as well. Mm. And just to provide some context, do you, do you guys know what the price points are going to be? Uh, do you, do yes. you know what kind of uh, what kind of levels you'll have to you'll have to pay to kind of enter on the low end and the high end? Yeah, so we're looking um, we're looking at launching in May, so May May twentieth. So I'm hoping um, that we've got all the price points nailed. So you know, there's some entry level price points which are uh, you know single studs, which are just under hundred pounds, um, oh. and, and then, then, then in silver, um, and then we will go all the way up through the the tiers to um, uh, a beautiful eighteen carat um, uh, collar that will uh, be upwards of twenty five thousand, nearly thirty thousand in eighteen carat. Holy shit. Yeah. So 
I, I think what's again wonderful about the, the the range we have is it's it's kind of essential jewelry for the most part, and then there's a couple of um, show-stopping pieces um, that uh, the Dom's created. But for the most part, it's jewelry you'll want to wear every day, and I think that has been um, the focus of, of of what Dom's done in this core collection, so that it can build from this, and the story can come from this core collection. Mm. And Sean, from your from your perspective, uh, out of the collection, what what do you think that you're going to kind of be wearing? So my wife has already got a very long list, and one of the <laughs> the beauties and the curse of a um, a, a process that makes metal thirty percent more dense than you would normally. It makes it stronger. It makes it better. It looks crisper, but it's thirty percent more dense of a solid metal. So yes. I'm, I'm currently in negotiation. My personal favorite's the cuff. I think that's fantastic, um, and that's the uh, pen. Hopefully, she'll have that in the thinner version in silver. Uh, but actually, to be honest, I think the studs are beautiful, and we not only be, not only they're beautiful. The process to create them is unlike any other process. They are formed in one go, so there's no soldering. It's a it's a it's an innovative process, like all of these that have had to be created in conjunction with Dom's vision and the fantastic people we have here um, to create a completely new way of creating a much more secure, stronger, and frankly, better product. Yeah, I mean, those studs are really interesting because they're, the, the post is struck into them. So the, yeah, the, the secu- the, they're so much more secure than any other stud that you could make. Uh, the post hasn't been annealed, which is when, when you heat um, a piece of metal, it becomes soft. So by not only is it not annealed, but it's also compressed. So you, you won't, it's, it, you, it's almost impossible to bend that little thin little post, you know, because it's formed into the, into the object that it's held holding on to. Mm. You know, this is actually a, a point I wanted to mention uh, earlier, but I, I totally forgot. It was actually with regards to the uh, to the difference that you were kind of noticing, uh, Dom, com- from casting compared to the to the struck items that you've been wear testing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'm I'm a I'm 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 I've already mentioned this to you anyway. I'm a, I'm a big fan of jewelry. I I, I enjoy it. It's not something that I can go overboard with. I'm not, I'm not, I don't see myself as a Johnny Depp kind of character, uh, yeah. but I enjoy wearing it. I love wearing necklaces and, and, and bracelets and rings and stuff like that. And uh, one of the things I do enjoy wearing are signet rings. Um, I think they're kind of, you know, uh, really great. And, you know, they're obviously steeped in history as well. Mine is blank. Uh, one day I'm sure I'll get something on there. But um, I've got two. I've got one which was cast, uh, and I've got one which was forged. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a part of the blog post that I'm going to be doing soon is talking about the different methods. Uh, and I, I have to say, I mean, obviously, forging isn't kind of isn't the same as 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 striking, uh, but there are similarities there. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I too notice a massive difference. In number one, the ability of the of the metal to withstand abuse, so to withstand scratching and especially fine scratching, um, is really where I'm noticing a massive difference. Uh, and I'm, it must be a um, something to do with the alignment of the uh, of 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 the uh, of of the atoms inside. When you when you smack it, it kind of straightens everything out. 
um, and allows less space between uh, between the atoms to kind of move and, and, and get scratched. I'm guessing that's what it does. Uh, you're and squeezing the, the, it into the form. Thousands of, thousands of pounds of pressure hitting something quite small is going to make it pretty dense. Um, and you are, as you said, squeezing those atoms into a much more denser, stronger and um, um, resilient form. Yes. And I also have noticed that items that have been forged that end up to be polished uh, end up having a significantly, uh, you know, mirror-like. It's 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 more mirror-like. So you don't get that that kind of wavy uh, reflection in a forged item that's been beautifully polished. Um, well, so I, I have whenever to you cast something, you you will always have a, a surface that is rough because mm. of the burnout process of of pouring the metal into the plaster that then has to be stripped, the plaster then has to be jet washed off. Um, whereas when you're striking something, if the if the surface that you're hitting it with is beautifully polished, then the surface you're going to create is beautifully polished. You know, you're going to be impacting the surface that you would normally manually put in through filing, sanding, polishing. Um, you, yeah, it, it's just a completely different way of getting that, that shine. Don, can I ask you a question? I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, so th th this particular company aren't very open about how they manufacture their products. Um, but do you know how this is made? Yeah. Do they uh, cast it or do they do they forge it? What, what do they do? That would be cast, definitely. Would it really? Yeah, definitely. What a shame. <laughs> What I mean, it, it, it's it, 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 it's not it's not it's in no way like a, a bad thing to, to be casting. Don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not throwing sure. throwing the, the whole of casting in the bin like it, it's it's totally valid. And it's how 95 percent of jewelry is made. You know, yes. it, ju it just so happens that the, that through the skill set that is available here, we're able to produce something that I, I feel is better. You know, it's, mm. just because something's better doesn't mean that what um, that what is what has been done there is bad. You know, um, it just it just means that we actually have a point of view that is unique. You know, like th th there's through my time working with other brands, I've visited pretty much every single manufacturer there is. You know, yes, and and I've seen the work that is going on on each of their benches, and. There really isn't that much diversity in manufacturing. Like, uh, like I can tell you, I could, I could physically take you to my five fa favorite factories around the world, and you'll see high-value brands from America being made next to low-value brands from the UK. Next to, like, do you know what I mean? And they're all being made in the in, in the same factories, and the the the, the differentiator is brand value, not quality. I'm with you. Um, and that's what is really interesting about this is that it's, it is removed from the traditional roots. You know, if you were to mm. start a brand today, you would not do what we're doing. You know, this is not the easy route. This is not the simple route. You know, if I was starting a brand new brand today, uh, you would go to who makes the best other products, but actually we've had an opportunity to go one step above that which is 
complicated and not simple, but it actually gives us an opportunity to have a real kind of differentiator and a real point of view from the pro- from a product perspective. And I think one of the other things which you know, we touched on a little bit earlier, a huge differentiator for us is going to be we part of this this diversification strategy is to to go into sustainable sources of precious metals and so we yeah. will be the first jeweler to launch a range from what we can understand um, uh, that derives itself from electronic waste so the gold which we'll be using will come from electronic waste because that's one of the initiatives that um, the royal mint is currently building a very big factory just over there um, to wow. as part of their sustainable um, strategy to precious metals. Extraordinary, extraordinary. And actually, that was going to kind of be uh, my next question. Uh, was you know one of the one of one of the most I, th- I think you know a really heavy subject that we 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 try and explore as much as possible in every brand that we associate ourselves with. And I think you guys would also agree with me is that the 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 Gen Z uh, that uh, you know. Uh, the Gen Zers and it's especially the millennial generation as well, you know, are really becoming very uh, concerned about the impact that the products that they purchase is having on their biosphere. Yeah. Um, this is becoming a really, you know, transparency isn't something that is a nice thing to have. It's something that is a necessity nowadays. Um, being it's your price to, being to play. Able to have, yeah. I mean, being able to have a product that is traceable uh, is really the only way that i think that product manufacturing is is moving towards um you know i, th- I think uh, some industries are more important than others for example you know things like the diamond industry for example has kind of had a historic problem with traceability um you know particularly with the conflict stones and stuff like that um but i wonder you know, because the, the, the whole thing with silicon chips is actually something that we used to talk about when I was at Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would we would talk about the, the massive wastage of silicon chips and the amount of, even though it's a fairly insignificant amount of gold in each in each silicon chip, when you put it all together, I mean, we we are having you know borderline mountains of silicon chip waste that are just being chucked on landfills. So that I think that's a really interesting way to go. Yeah. The, the... <laughs> The, there is 7% of the world's gold that sits in discarded electronics. We produce, right? as, a, as a globe, we produce 50 million tons of this stuff every year, and it's growing by like 10, 15% a year. And we only recycle something like 18%. I mean, I, I bet you if I walked around your house, we would have some uh, disused electronics. So on average, we've all got about 20. And if you think about it in those terms, uh, these chips, which get you know, from, from the UK, they get shipped abroad um, so they can be burned to release those precious metals. And then a lot of the time that, that hazardous waste is going into landfill. And so not mm. only is this a, a value opportunity in terms of gold, it is uh, an absolute environmental imperative. And you, know, mm. you mentioned the point that you know, 30% of the consumers at the moment who are buying jewellery are making their decision based on provenance. And that's Indeed. a big number. Um, so, yeah, it, we've, we have, again, because I think of the brand that we are, we have ventured into this um, looking at the whole picture, not just the aesthetic, not just the jobs, not just the future, but also the, the, the environmental impact that we're going to make, which is, we believe, going to be significant and uh, 
we hope spearhead a lot of change in this industry and a number of others. Well, you know what, I, I got to say, I mean, this entire project just makes me tremendously excited. And I think, I think, you know, I'll be, I'll be totally honest with you, you know, the Royal Mint is something that I've had a lot of respect for for a while, but not a tremendous amount of interest. Um, you know, it's an extraordinarily interesting um, institution, but not something that I really think about very often. Uh, but I have to say the recent discussions I've had with 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 yourself, Dom, and, and with you, Sean, as well, has really made me tremendously interested. And I love the fact that you guys were just so realistic that, listen, this is where things are going, and this is kind of what we need to do. And if we're going to do it, we're going to do it properly. We're going to think about all the facets here, because it is multifaceted. We're going to think about all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end, Um and I absolutely love that. And your product vision as well, Dom, I think is truly fascinating. I love the way that you've decided to tackle the homeware thing and, 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 and the team as well have kind of supported that vision and the idea. I'm, I'm just very excited to kind of see what it kind of looks like. Um, <laughs> I, th I think it's going to be a massive hit, um, truly. I wonder, Dom, when... When you when you kind of think about the historical provenance of the Royal Mint and and the last guy to have your job was Sir Isaac Newton, I believe. Uh, when you think about those things, um, do you feel intimidated, or are you someone that kind of takes things in stride? I mean, I, yeah, I mean. I I don't think there's any worry of me filling Sir Isaac Newton's boots. Um, <laughs> so I, 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 I couldn't really compare myself to him. It, it's a funny anecdote to be able to say that there's not been many creative heads before me and one of them was Sir Isaac Newton. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a surreal concept. But um, no, I, I think I'm, I, I'm generally quite a pragmatic and... Um, I, I I tend to deal with the, the task in hand rather than feel overwhelmed by it. And I think also, you know, you can't comprehend a thousand years of history no. and the next thousand years. So it, you know, always discuss with people that you, you're at very, very best transferring a baton. We seem to be lucky that we're at this pivot point, that we're, we're shifting and changing. For, this has been going on for a few years and will go on for a few more. Um, but you really are a point in history and a small point at that. And so you can't almost get involved with the history that's going ahead of you and the history that's going behind. You just have to do your, have your place in that history, which is um, still a very small place, but hopefully, you know, with what Dom's doing is quite an important place. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, guys, honestly, just kind of learning about this project and, and seeing the passion and excitement that you all have uh, about this is 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 truly quite infectious, and uh, you know I'm I'm very excited to see how it goes and the direction that it takes, um, and kind of what future collections also hold. I think that's what's really going to be fascinating to see how it how it evolves from here. Um, you know the inspiration that uh, the creative team take from the reaction on particular products. I think is going to be really interesting. Um, so I have to say, it truly has been my pleasure. And thank you so much, both of you, uh, for all the time that you've given me. Uh, I know that uh, 
you know, you're both fairly time strapped. So thank you so much for spending some of that with me today. I really appreciate it. It's been not only a pleasure to learn about the project, but such a true pleasure. And probably one of the one of the biggest perks of this podcast is getting to talk to people like yourselves. So truly, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. It's been a, it's been one one a great great fun. Thank you so much for having us on. It's been really fun. Totally. Thank you. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Amazing. Well, I'll tell you what. Until next time, and Sean, we do need to have a chat about getting you on again. We've already had an off-camera <laughs> chat about that, <laughs> but uh, we'll. We'll, we'll definitely do that. And, and, and Dom, so. it will be lovely to see you in person as well. I'm going to, it's, it's, it's scary how used to, uh, you know, especially during the pandemic, we've become so used to knowing people very well, but never actually seeing them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's, um, it's convenient, but a scary thought nonetheless, where we become very comfortable with, uh, you know, no, no physical interaction. Um, but we 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 must meet in person. It would be a it would be a, a true pleasure. Like I said, I've been a fan of yours for a while now. Uh, so just picking your brain on some of the things that you may not necessarily feel comfortable talking about on an interview. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, would be would be an absolute pleasure. It really would. For sure, we'll do an unedited version. <laughs> Brilliant. It will do. It. That's an offline conversation. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, guys, thank you again. Thank you.